God came down. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Pastor Dale. I'm one of the teaching pastors here with Ryan, and it's my privilege today to open the Word with you. So go to Luke chapter 2. We've been exploring the story of uh, Christmas, especially in Matthew and Luke, and today we move on to Luke chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in about verse 8. If you're new here, let me just uh, point out to you a couple of things. We always provide an outline to help you track and also some follow-up devotional things that you can do throughout the week. So this is uh, in your weekly today, and feel free to pull that out if that's helpful to you at all. And, and if you're new, I'd love to meet you out in the plaza afterwards. As Ryan mentioned earlier, we're in the midst of a series, which I, I love what, what our creative team came up with, called God Came Down. We've been talking about hope, we've been talking about, about love, we've been talking about joy last week, and today... Uh, we focus on this theme of peace. And we're going to get that and see that, discover that as we look uh, in depth at the story of the appearance of the angels to the shepherds. So turn to Luke 2, verse 8, and pray with me, please. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the revelation that it contains. Uh, thank you for the truth that it unveils to us about you and about ourselves Thank you for how it uh, speaks, especially at this time of the year, Father, into the real meaning behind <clears throat> this thing that our, <clears throat> our culture calls a holiday. <clears throat> but we see the holiness of what you did. Uh, we thank you that our culture recognizes it, celebrates it to some degree, but help us, Father, to go uh, more deeply to understand what it really means that you stepped down. That you came down. And especially today, Father, help us discover in your word how that relates to this sense of real peace in our lives. In Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Today in Luke chapter 2, we're going to discover a message that God is going to send via an angel. Now that alone should not surprise you because he's been doing it all the way through the Christmas story. In fact, if you track back with me, you'll remember that uh, if you've read the story, uh, the first occurrence came to a guy named Zacharias, and, and an angel came and appeared to Zacharias and gave him a revelation of what was coming down in terms of what God was about to do. And his response to the angel was, how can this be? Can you give me some evidence? And then an angel appeared to Mary. Remember that? Came to Mary and appeared to Mary and told Mary, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have a child by the Holy Spirit, blah, blah, blah. And you can imagine Mary's response. And Mary's response initially was what? Her response was, but how can this be? How can this be? I'm just a virgin. How can I have a baby? Later on, a Mary came, uh, another angel came in a dream to Joseph, and, and Joseph experienced that angelic appearance in a dream, again with a message. So today we're going to look at another occurrence in which an angel is going to show up, but this time it's going to be different, because this time the angel shows up, and just think of it this way. There's a declaration by one angel, followed by a huge celebration by this multitude of angels, followed by a huge surprise for this group of unlikely recipients called shepherds. So declaration, celebration, surprise. And what we're going to see as we first study their story, we're going to see what happened then, try to understand it, and then we're going to take this promise that they make and say, all right, so how does that shape our story? How does that affect our story as we 
develop our relationship with God here on planet Earth. So pray with me again. Father, just teach us from your word. Thank you so much for it. I pray that as we delve into this story now that you will unlock for us this real essence of the peace that we can have because of what you did that first Christmas. We, we love you. Amen. Listen to the story. Let's pick with this section which I call the uh, declaration, the angel's message in verse 8. You know the context. The context is baby Jesus has, has been born in Bethlehem. They've traveled there because of the census. So you know the story. We've taught you this story already. But they've traveled there because of a census. They've gone there because that was the family lineage that they carried. And, and uh, Joseph and Mary uh, found that there was no room for them in the inn, uh, which was actually what's called a con. We'll explain that in a minute. But they checked into the only place they were allowed to stay, which was the stable with the animals. And they're, they're actually bed down, most likely in a cave, uh, used for shelter for the animals. And then all of a sudden, wow, God delivers God delivers and a child is born. Jesus Christ is born to Mary. And, and then this scene now in verse 8 picks up. Pick it up in verse 8. It says, Now in the same region, after they wrapped the baby Jesus in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn or the con, we'll explain that. Verse 8, In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. It lit the place up and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people for today in the city of David, that is Bethlehem, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you so that you know that what I'm saying is true. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, not clothes, but cloths, lying in a manger, a food trough. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts. Let's pull up right there. As you took of this declaration by the angel, it, uh, it, it, first of all, the biggest surprise of the passage is that, the, that this is even happening at all. Because shepherds, as I think Ryan mentioned a couple weeks ago, like the Magi, for different reasons, were often considered the least likely for God to choose as a vehicle for announcing a message of this importance. The Magi, as we learned last week, were least likely because they were actually kind of astrologers. They studied the stars, they tracked the stars, they tried to predict what was happening by the stars, which actually is something that we learned last week God condemns in Scripture. These were people that were not Jewish, not from Israel, not of God's people, from the East, doing something that God doesn't even recommend we do. But they were wealthy astrologers and Magi, and to them, God gave a revelation that, wow, the king of Israel has been born. So they packed their bags and began to plan at least. And probably about 18 months later, they show up in Israel looking for the king. They were unlikely recipients of God's divine message. Today, we see another group. Shepherds were considered unclean. Shepherds were considered lower class. Shepherds were not considered the ones that God would choose to reveal anything of importance to his people. And these were not the scribes, these were not the Pharisees, these were not the religious guys. These were the shepherds, common, you might say blue-collar guys, 
who get the low-grade job of hanging out with the sheep in the fields, watching over them, protecting them. So that, you know, they're gathered around their campfire when this scene goes down. And if you break down this scene, you can imagine why they were frightened. I mean, these are blue-collar common guys. So my guess is they were not sitting around the campfire saying, well, have you memorized your scriptures lately? Let's all share our favorite verse of the week. You know, they weren't doing that. They weren't having a Bible study. They were working guys, hanging by the campfire, watching the sheep at night. Now, how many of you work with blue-collar working guys? When they're camped out and they're hanging by the campfire, what are they talking about? Okay, I'm not going to talk about it, okay? I can't talk about it because I've been there, okay? I go camping in West Virginia every year with a bunch of guys, many of whom come from coal mining backgrounds. And, uh, and when I go trout fishing with these guys and we sit around the campfire at night, you never know what topic's going to come up. But it's usually not, well, hey, what do you think about Jesus, okay? So the reality is they're talking about whatever guys talk about, and all of a sudden, an angel appears, one angel. Now notice this. One angel appears, and it says that the glory of God, the glory of the Lord, shined or shone out from him. So the very appearance of this angel is so bright that it shocks them and frightens them. Now you have to pause for a minute to kind of correct some theology of angels before we even get into what he said. When you picture angels, you've got to realize this is not talking about what I grew up with picturing either Casper the Friendly Ghost. How many of you are old enough to have ever watched Casper the Friendly Ghost? Three, oh, some of you, okay. How many of you under the age of 35 even know about Casper the Friendly Ghost? Okay, I asked this in the first service, and I was shocked because I had some like 13, 14-year-old guys on the front row, and one of them said, oh, I know Casper the Friendly Ghost. I said, how do you know him? He says, well, we bought the whole DVD set. I had no idea Casper the Friendly Ghost had made it to the DVD sets or Netflix or anywhere. I want to buy a set for my grandkids. But anyway, this is not that. Angels are not like this nice little friendly ghost floating around wanting to help people. Angels are not also, they're not people who have died and sprouted wings. That's the common cultural idea, is that when you die, you become an angel up in heaven. Not true. You don't become angels. Angels are spiritual beings created by God before man ever even existed. They're spiritual beings. They're powerful beings. Next to God himself, they'd be the next most powerful beings in the universe. Some of them rebelled against God, and today they're referred to as what? Demons. Demons are fallen angels who rebelled against God. Did you know that? Others are angels who have still stayed true to their calling to serve the Most High God. Sometimes they are messengers for God, delivering messages like in the Christmas story. But other times we read like in Ephesians chapter 6 that, that what's going on that we don't see are spiritual conflicts and battles in heavenly places between spiritual forces of good and darkness that we don't even see. Angels are warriors for God, not just messengers. So you got a warrior angel. Picture it that way. That's the better way to picture this. Picture a warrior angel, a fearsome angel. And he appears, and he's so bright from the glory of God that he, he radiates out and he lights it up. Now these guys, all it says in the passage is, therefore they were terribly frightened. So therefore, the first thing the angel says is what? Fear not. In fact, let me give you four key highlights of this declaration. It begins with, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm not here to hurt you. I'm not here as a warrior. I'm here as a messenger. And I've got a message for you. 
See, where do you think the shepherds were? They're either on their face, or I think most of them, if it says they were terrified, if I'm terrified and I have an angel suddenly show up, I'm diving behind the nearest rock. So I'm behind a rock, behind a tree. He calls them out. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Here's why. He says, I bring you good news of great joy. I'm here to give you a real reason to have a party. Good news, great joy. For unto you today, third part, is born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The Messiah has come. He's just been born today. And you're the first to learn about it. Now again, I've already mentioned how uncommon and unlikely this is. These guys are shocked. Why, what are you doing talking to us? You should be in Jerusalem. You should be at the temple. You should be with the religious leaders giving this kind of news. But no, no, no. He's with common everyday people. Why? Because we're going to learn today this message is for common everyday people like you and me. As Ryan mentioned in the announcements, that we're all broken. We're all sinful. We all need help. So we're just like this group of guys gathered around the campfire talking about whatever kind of stuff they're talking about, but probably embarrassed that some angel's listening in. And all of a sudden, they get this good news. And it's that a Savior has been born, the Messiah, the Lord of the universe has come. Now, the interesting thing now is the next phrase. And here's a sign for you. Here's a sign for you. Since he's been born in Bethlehem. Now, by the way, that, that alone is another interesting tidbit. Bethlehem was not a power city. It was prophesied in the book of Micah to be the place where the Messiah would be born, Micah 5.2, thousands of years earlier. But here's the deal. Bethlehem was a small town. Bethlehem, I saw one historian estimated, was somewhere under 1,000 people. You're talking about a small village of less than 1,000 people these shepherds most likely are from there. These shepherds live there. They probably know everyone in town. They know all their business. They know who's having babies and who's not. They also know this wave of travelers have come to Bethlehem for this census. So there's a lot of out-of-towners. They probably know exactly where the out-of-towners stay when they come. But Bethlehem is nothing special. And again, God just keeps driving home the idea that this thing God is doing is not for special people. It's for common people, every people, rich, poor, all sinners, all in need of a Savior. But he says today, this has happened in Bethlehem. And then he says, and here's a sign for you. And the sign is this Messiah, the King of the Jews, the coming one that you've been waiting and waiting and waiting for. He's going to be a baby wrapped in normal cloths and laying in a food trough, a manger. Why would that be a sign? Why would that be proof that this angelic message was really from God and that Jesus really was Messiah? It's because you would never expect a king to be born that way. Sleeping with animals in a stinky stable, laying in a manger, that's not what you would expect. But yet that was the way Jesus showed up. By the way, the manger that they describe uh, in most of our nativity sets is probably not, probably not correct because most of the, these, um, we know that Mary and Joseph went to the inn. Let me just kind of back up and paint the picture because now the, the guys are going to go in the next scene, they're going to go and check out this thing. 
But what they're in, they're, they're in an inn. An inn uh, is often referred to uh, in Israel as a, in that time as a khan, K-H-A-N. A khan was a, was, a, was a place that travelers for almost no money, if they were poor, that's where they went to stay. Now when I picture an inn, I kind of picture the inn run by Scrooge in 1885 in England, you know what I mean? Where he comes to the door with his bathrobe on and holds a lantern and says, who's there? Sorry, no room at the end. That's not what's going on here. A con was typically a place for travelers that was built by the owner of the property. It was often a three-sided shelter with a roof on it. But the front of the con had no wall at all, didn't need a door. It's just a three-sided small shelter, picture maybe eight by ten feet in size or something, in which all, and it has no furniture. You carry your own little rug if you want one that you can sit on or lay on, and, and, but you just kind of rent this little space. Why is the front open? Because it's usually open to a common area in which the travelers could keep their animals. They could keep watch over their animals as they were up during the night and watching over the animals at night. This con, it's believed, most likely was against a hillside against a hillside with perhaps a cave that they used to double as a place for the animals to have some shelter up in the cave. So Jesus most likely is in a cave with the livestock because all the little cons, there might be five or six or eight of them in a row, they were all rented out. So they had no room in the inn, meaning they didn't even have one of these little three-sided stalls to sleep in. So instead, Jesus... Jesus is born, Mary and Martha, uh, excuse me, Mary and Martha. Mary's not married to Martha, not even in this age. Okay, I'm sorry. Mary and Joseph, Mary and Joseph uh, have to rely upon just sleeping with the animals. I point that out because that's what makes this such a miracle. The angel knew that the shepherds needed proof that what they were saying was really true. It had really happened. They needed some proof that they could go check out, some some details. And these were the details. You're going to find the baby wrapped in cloths, laying in a food trough. By the way, most of the food troughs in this area of the world at that time were made out of limestone, not wood. So to go home, take your manger scene, take a little rock, carve it out, and that's where baby Jesus probably lay. In a limestone carved food trough that the animals would eat out of and maybe they clean it out as best they can and maybe put some fresh hay in it or something but that's where our lord chose to lay his first night what an expression of the humility of god as he comes to become one of us but then there's a celebration the heavenly host lights up the sky pick it up with me verse 13 and suddenly it goes from declaration to celebration one angel to a multitude Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now just imagine this scene. We don't know how many angels there were, but we know that God has millions of angels. We know that there's a countless number of angels that exist. And and we know that one angel alone When he appeared, the glory of God shone out from him enough that it terrified the shepherds. So now, picture the sky suddenly filled with a multitude of angels. Picture a million, 
just to round it off. Can you imagine how that lit up the sky? It may have only lit it up for 15 seconds or 30 seconds or one minute. I'm not sure how long they sang this little refrain, but their message is recorded. It was quick, but it was clear. It says, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. That was their message. You know, let me say just a little side note here. Uh, Last week, we talked about the Magi, for example. And and one of the biggest mysteries Christians have had over the years is exactly how did God do this with the star? And uh, because there was the bright star that they saw, they saw it, it went away. They, uh, they knew that the, the, the king of Israel had been born, so they packed their bags, they, they go to Jerusalem, which is the capital. By the way, they don't follow, the scripture do not, it does not say they followed the star to Jerusalem. They saw the bright star or light in the sky, telling them the baby had been born, and then they traveled to Jerusalem to find him, right? And then after they left Herod, which we learned last week, and they go to to Bethlehem, they're told to go to Bethlehem, it says that they rejoiced greatly because the uh, star that they had seen reappeared and led them exactly to the house where Jesus was. So all the different theories, and there are a lot. Ryan mentioned a couple of the common ones last week. I'm going to just throw out, for what it's worth, Dale's idea, and that is a crazy one, and that is this. Maybe what they saw actually was not just a star, but it was a bright the brightness of the glory of God of a million angels this night singing this song to the shepherds. Because it would have lit up the horizon, even if for just a moment it lit it up. Perhaps they saw that. We do know that and angels in elsewhere, in the Old Testament, the glory of God led the people Israel through the wilderness. Remember that? It was the glory of God. So maybe the glory of God expressed through some of his angels is actually the the light that appears and leads them to the baby Jesus. The the reality is we don't really know. All we do know is this. There's no way without God directly pulling off a miracle that all of that happened. I think this uh, appearance of the angels may be part of the clue. But the shepherds now come and... They, uh, they, they, and they've heard this simple message. Let me break it down. Glory to God. This is a God thing. This is not something that's about how wonderful man is, but how wonderful God is. Secondly, they say peace on earth. There's peace now available to planet earth among men. And then there's this phrase that gets translated in every Bible a little differently. Um, in my version, for example, it says, Uh, among men with whom he is pleased. Um, I kind of prefer the translation, actually, of the old King James that says, goodwill toward men. Uh, The bottom line on this is this. It's a difficult phrase to translate, but don't misunderstand. I want to eliminate one thought, and that is this is not about the idea that, uh, wow, God was so pleased with man that he decided to send Jesus. Not at all. Uh, this phrase is, ind- is indication that it was God's choice. It was God's action. It was by God's good pleasure. It was by God's good pleasure that he stepped out of heaven and came down to earth to solve our problem. It was God's goodwill being expressed toward men. It's a God thing, without a doubt. Not a man thing. So it's not about the goodness of man, but it's about the goodness and graciousness of our God that he takes this action. The shepherds 
are surprised, but in the final part of our story, they, uh, they say, let's go check it out. The angel has said, here's proof uh, that I'll give you. This is how you're going to find the baby. And sure enough, here it goes, verse 15. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight now to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry, and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger, emphasis. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And then the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, and underline this phrase, just as had been told to them. In other words, the emphasis on the story is this. They go, hey, let's go and see. That's the first thing. Let's check this out. And before we really buy into this, I need to see it with my own eyes. It doesn't surprise me that they wanted to check out the evidence. And then it says, when they, when, they, when they saw, they said it was just as had been told them. They didn't just discover a baby in Bethlehem. They discovered the baby exactly the way the angels predicted it would be. And in a way that you would never, in all the history of humanity, would ever dream it up to go down that way. Because God had a very unique plan to, to surprise us with this gift that came down from heaven. It was just as had been told to them. And then the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God. Now at the heart of this passage is then how does this affect us? You know, I mean, apart from giving us a little more detail to straighten up our manger scene and, and maybe realize that, okay, you know, the, the magi, they come a little later to a house, not necessarily to the stable and... Uh, uh, as Ryan mentioned last week, there may have been three of them because there's three gifts mentioned, but we don't really know the number. There could have been more of them. They obviously traveled with an entourage because they were wealthy. So I'm really increasing the cost of your typical manger scene at your house, okay? I mean, you need a whole, a whole parade of people. You need the, the wise guys or the magi. You need, you need some, some military guards probably to go with them. You need all their supplies. You need their camels, but you need their horses too. You need all this stuff. You know, and, and so, so the reality is, though, this. What's the good news and great joy for all people? Because the first angel starts with that, right? I bring you good news of great joy. For unto you today is born... And here's the first thing. God came down to be your Savior by His grace. He didn't do it because you deserved it. He didn't do it because He was pleased with men. He did it by His good pleasure, by His good will to meet the deepest need that we have in our lives. And we need a Savior to save us from our sins. That's the first thing the angel proclaims. You know, as you talk about that, it made me think of Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Let me turn to it. In fact, I'll put this one on the screen for sake of time and let you read it with me on the screen. Follow along. It says, Therefore, having been justified, which means made just before God, totally forgiven of all your sins, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that realize? You realize what that means? Is by the simple act of placing your trust in Christ as your Savior, as the one who died on the cross for your sins, putting your faith in Him, choosing to be His follower, God forgives you. And it's an act of His grace. Look at verse 2. Through whom also we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. You have hope, you have peace, meaning you are totally okay with God. He loves you unconditionally on your worst day of your year or your best day of your year. He loves you and He has forgiven you and you are at peace with God. God's, not, God's got no beef with you because all of your sin was, was paid for by Christ on the cross He died for all of our sins, past, present, and future. By the way, when Jesus went to the cross, how many of your sins were still future? Answer? All of them. And all of mine. So when I sin, yeah, it grieves God because He's my Father and He wants me to to walk with Him, trust Him, obey Him. But yet, in terms of my relationship with God, I have peace with God. That's the essence of what it means to experience salvation. But then there's a second statement when he says peace on earth is what's going to result from this uh, and goodwill toward men. God came down not just to be your savior, but to also bring his children to a place of peace in their lives. And that this peace in some way is, is, is global even. It's available to all and eventually it will affect all. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. What's that mean? Let me try to help as I tried to go a little deeper into this this week. First of all, what's it mean to be at peace? What is it? I think the common thought in our culture is often, well, if I'm not at war, I'm at peace. It's either war or peace, right? That was the title of the book, right? Okay, so it's either war or peace. So if, if you're at conflict with someone or if two countries have conflict, and if they work out a, a deal, a ceasefire, then they go from being at war to being at peace. But this is something much deeper than that. The Hebrew word shalom uh, is a fascinating word. It's the most common word for peace. And in Numbers 6:22 to 26, here's how it describes uh, in three short verses what peace looks like. I love this passage. He says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you. Be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you. It means to, to basically smile on you. That God is smiling on you. And give you peace. And give you peace. So here's the deal. I think what I see in this is that the peace that is promised to us by Jesus through God coming down is much more than an absence of conflict. In fact, here's a statement you could take away. Peace is not just the absence of battles or conflict, but the presence of blessing and well-being from God. Now think about that. Because I think that's what God wants for you as His children if you've put your faith in Christ. 
He wants to give us not just the absence of battles or conflict. He wants to, to, to give us what Jesus called, I came that you might have life, but have it abundantly. This is the abundant life that Jesus promised. It's the presence of God's blessing. It's the presence of well-being from God as we follow Christ and live out the Christian life under His grace, experiencing His peace. It's way more than just having an absence of fights or conflicts. We also know that this type of peace is not tied to our circumstances going on in, around our life every day. Um, here's how I know that. The New Testament word for peace, Irene, that Jesus often used, John 14, 27, just one example, where Jesus says this, Peace I leave you. Now, Jesus is on his way to the cross, right? And he knows his disciples are going to experience persecution. Some of them even martyrdom. But here's what he promises them. Peace I leave you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled or let it be fearful. So you're, you're going to go through hard times, you're going to go through difficult times, but as you follow me, I don't want your heart to be troubled or fearful. I want it to be at peace. See, that's a different kind of peace if you're headed into, into problems, into conflict even. So we know, therefore... The observation is this, that, that real peace uh, must be beyond our circumstances, rooted in my relationship with Jesus, and then flowing into and affecting all of my life. That's what he wants when he says, peace on earth. I think that's the peace that Christ comes to offer us. It's not linked to our circumstances. It's certainly not linked to our performance. So what is this type peace. What difference does it make? I want to close by just laying out four aspects of peace that I see in the Word of God. Uh, you'll have time this week if you do the encounters with God, which Ryan and I encourage you to do every week. You can sign up and get them online or else they're actually, if you flip over your outline, they're right on the back of the outline. But this week, here's what you'll learn. Number one, it's all rooted in our relationship with God. It starts there. It's foundational. It's peace in the presence of God that I know that on the worst day of my life, when I've got a bad attitude, I'm, I'm irritated with God, maybe to make it better, I'm irritated with my wife, I'm also irritated with you as a church, uh, I, you know, my kids make me mad, you know, all of that, on the worst day of my life, I am at peace with God. See, we don't, we don't think that way because in our lives, usually, if someone's treating us in kind of a crappy way, we don't, we're not really at peace with them. But God's love never ends. Now, he can be grieving our behavior. He's, he, can even be, he can even be kind of angry at our behavior. You know, just as we would be angry if our kids were being disrespectful and ornery and getting in trouble, right? Because it grieves us that, you know, you're making dumb decisions, this is going to hurt you. Don't do this. You know, so, so we can have friction in our relationship. But the point is this. God never is at war with me. Ever. I have peace with God because I am justified by faith perfectly. Now, knowing that, 
tells me that this kind of peace is not something that just comes and goes. Earlier, I mentioned the idea of ceasefires. We kind of think if two countries are at war and they declare a ceasefire, then they're at peace, right? But, you know, here's the problem with ceasefires. I'll give it to you in a quote. Real peace has to be more than a ceasefire because ceasefires don't work because they always are, uh, they always are conditional. Therefore, one shot and you're back at war. And I think that's true in terms of between husbands and wives or, or relationships here on earth or between nations. So if all we do is strike a deal, we say, okay, as long as you're perfect and I'm perfect, we're okay. As soon as someone messes up, you're back at war. But that's not our relationship with God because God's grace is unconditional. God's grace is, an, is, is not a conditional ceasefire, but a permanent covenant relationship that He makes with us. He says, you are now my child. And I will never stop loving you, even if you irritate me. Wow. Only a God of grace does that. It's a grace-based relationship with God. Now, if that's true for me, now it begins to flow into the rest of my life. And that's the second type of peace. I can now have more peace with my circumstances or my problems. I have peace in spite of my problems. John 16:33. Jesus talked about this. He said it this way, These things I've spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. But take courage, I've overcome the world. I'm still with you. I never leave you. I have a purpose behind what's going on in your life. I can redeem it for good. I, you know, I, you know, so trust me with the problems in your life. Because as long as you have me, you can have peace. See, that's a different level of peace. It's not tied to my circumstances. It's kind of like joy. Last week, Ryan talked about joy. Um, I heard it said one time that sometimes the difference in joy and happiness, and I would apply it to peace as well, is uh, happiness is linked to what's happening. You know, if things are happening right, then I get happy. But joy can be founded in something much deeper. Joy can be founded in the presence of God and Jesus Christ in my life. And if I know I have that, I can have joy even when I don't have happiness. Happiness is based on what's happening, but joy is based and rooted in this relationship with Jesus. I would say the same thing about peace. Peace, joy, love, hope, all the themes that we're talking about are rooted in this relationship with Christ. I have peace with God. I have peace with my problems. Thirdly, I can have more peace with people. I can have peace with people. Because a lot of times what wrecks our lives is the conflicts that we have in relationships, right? If we have broken, wounded relationships with people, and you know, they ticked me off, and therefore I'm not going to be nice to them until they get nice to me, and once you ask me to forgive you and you humble yourself, maybe I'll give you a little forgiveness. And, you know, but yet, if we understand that we have peace with God as a gift of His grace, I don't earn it. And God says, now I want you to give it to others the same way. Colossians 3.14, my favorite verse on this. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace, there it is, the peace of Christ rule in your hearts which indeed you were called as a part of the body of Christ, as a part of one body, and be thankful. 
So I need to be at peace with people. Maybe they don't have to earn my forgiveness anymore because, you know, I can let God take care of them. I can let God be their judge. I don't have to be the judge. I don't have to even the score in all my relationships. I don't have to live, well, okay, you hurt me, I want to hurt you. We're going to keep it even. No, no, no. Instead, I can live being a giver of peace, a giver of grace, because that's what I've received when God came down. Last but not least, one more type peace. Because some people say, yeah, but this says peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And I look around the planet and I see so much blasted conflict and war and hatred. And How can you say that Jesus brought peace? The fact of the matter is, this part of Jesus' promise is yet to be fulfilled. But it's coming. Scripture teaches that there will be ultimate peace someday that will be global and forever. Global and forever peace. Read the last few chapters of the book of Revelation and you're going to see that Jesus doesn't just come to earth once, which is what we're studying now. He's coming again. And when he comes again, he will put an end to all evil, all hatred, all injustice. Jesus will bring about a kingdom of perfect peace on earth. Perfect. And then... He'll create a new heaven and a new earth in which perfect peace will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. And you will ne- it says no more sin, no more pain, no more crying, no more mourning, no more... None, none of that. That's coming. And it's coming because God came down to be your Savior and to offer peace. So today, as we move into communion to wrap up our service, uh, as the band comes, we invite them up. And let me just give this invitation that you know, communion is a time in which we each reflect on our relationship with Christ. And if we know that we've placed our faith in Christ, we would invite you to go to one of the tables and to take a small piece of bread that is a reminder of the body of Jesus sacrificed on the cross for you. Take a small cup of juice that's a reminder of the precious blood of Christ that was given for you. Recommit yourself in your love and affection and obedience to Christ. Worship Him. But perhaps if you've never made that choice of Jesus as your source of peace with God, as your Savior, then I would invite you to pray with me right now. You can do that this morning because God came down for you. This may be when you need to do that. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you that you came down for us. Thank you for the perfect peace with you and with life and with others that can flow out of that. Father, as we approach the communion tables in a few moments, um, May you, as the ultimate gift, be our focus. And Father, if we have a friend here this morning who's never made that decision and choice to trust Christ personally, I would give them the opportunity to pray with me right now and say, Lord Jesus, I trust you. I believe you were the Son of God. You really were. You came and you died on the cross for my sins, and I placed my trust in your death, your resurrection. And I ask you to be the Lord of my life. Would you help me discover your peace?
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.